Welcome to Conversations on Peaceful Change, an initiative by the Global Network on Peaceful Change. And today we have uh, a distinguished professor from George Washington University, Professor Michael Barnett, who has authored several books and articles, important articles, on the question of international order, regional order, global governance, humanitarianism, and a whole host of subject matters of interest to us. It is really a great uh, honor to have you, uh, Michael, today. And we had a wonderful talk by Michael on his new uh, book on uh, um, humanitarianism at McGill. And uh, extensive writings on subjects such as Middle East, humanitarian action, global governance, United Nations, etc. And uh, what impresses uh, one is Michael's compassion for the world order. And for a, a scholar brought up in the north, uh, global north, his concern for the rest of the humanity is very, very impressive. And so I'm going to pick up a few items, topics that uh, that you've written over the past 30 years or so. Uh, the first topic is uh, one that I use a lot in my course is the security community literature. Yeah. You're actually a pioneer. Well, you, you brought out uh, after the initial enthusiasm for it, the pluralistic security community idea. And uh, the notion of dependable expectations of peaceful change. And that's, it seems like you had a, a wonderful example, European Union in particular, but it is on a kind of decline right now. A lot of people are worried about the fate of the security community idea. What do you think what happened there? Is, is it because uh, we had a, a systemic jolt at the end of the Cold War that gave birth to these sort of new ideas, a lot more, and that others were supposed to draw some lessons, some did, like Southeast Asia, but today it seems like the regions are back to square one or not progressing in any linear way as we expected. Yeah, well, you know, back back in the day, I mean, uh, and in many ways I was very lucky to uh, have had my lead partner, which was, who was Emmanuel Adler, yes. who, um, you know, sort of... University of Toronto. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are several things that sort of stuck out at the time in terms of why we felt that this was the moment to if you will, reintroduce the world to security communities. And, and certainly it was that, the, that this post-Cold War mood was one in which increasingly what you saw in terms of even the grand strategy of states was not to build more militaries, but to build more institutions. Yes. And there was a greater attempt to actually build these institutions in a way that would produce some degree of reassurance that not if they completely trusted one another that they wouldn't be hoodwinked, but that in fact they could begin slowly to engage each other, but in that same process begin to let their guard down. Yes. And you know that for us was one of the real important telltale signs, was not rhetoric, but rather what are you doing with your military expenditures? What's your forward positioning look like? What kind of alliances are you making? And that, you know, what was was quite important was that there were new expectations about what was possible, which was uh, we we thought incredibly important. But also clear was 
the importance of collective learning. Yes. That there was, the learning wasn't simply done by individual states. There was a kind of collective recognition about the limits of a world that, a world order that's organized around deterrence and the attempt to actually move towards a world order organized around assurance. Yes. And we wanted to try and not just simply capture that, but we wanted to understand what were the, I think, very um, rare dynamics that lead to that unfolding. Mm -hmm. So all along, we, didn't have, we never thought that this was going to be, uh, that the world was going to be moving towards a collective security community. Um, rather, we understood that this is something that is actually in many ways a rare animal. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, in terms of the way we, dis we were very careful about defining security communities, it wasn't simply that you had the assurance that someone else would not attack you, uh, because that could be generated by deterrence. Yes. Uh, but rather, what we really wanted to try and capture was the extent to which there was new forms of collective identity. Uh, that was, and so for us, collective identity was an incredibly important factor, and the extent to which this collective identity produced, if you will, its own kind of trust-building mechanisms, and there, your own patterns of how it is that you will settle disputes that comes directly from that identity. Yes. So, you know, back in the day, the most, you know, common example of this would be liberal states don't settle their disputes through violence. Yes. And irrespective of, right, the empirical work that's gone into that, mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, that was a really good example, though, in which a group of states with a set of identities we're liberal states, there is a kind of collective recognition that we are liberal and that as liberal states, this is how we can and cannot settle our disputes. It's going we, beyond structural reasons. Exactly. And we hire lawyers. We don't, we don't hire generals anymore. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we were trying to sort of understand how that process unfolded. And we were fortunate to have an established, really quick, uh, outstanding group of scholars who were also quite interested, some of whom were, you know, had been Carl Deutsch, who initially introduced the term, had been his students, yes. uh, and, which was actually really, really wonderful. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, we, we were trying to do is not just simply resurrect, but also rethink it on, on different... And conceptualize. Yeah, conceptualize it. So, you know, it was, you know, a little disappointing because it was published in 1998, and then of course a few years later, uh, like a lot of things, you know, our expectations began to change. But nevertheless, we still see that many of these security communities still do not prepare or expect war. Uh, the reasons might be different than what they were back in 1998. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's still holding, yes. and I don't there think that's trivial. There is a proliferation of institutions, there are, some built by the emerging countries. Right, powers, yeah. and you know, there's also been, as many people have talked about in terms of sort of global preventive change, mm -hmm. uh, we also now find a lot of regional institutions yes. that are very involved behind the scenes mm -hmm. that are 
on top of things as, you know, we, we don't call them necessarily preventive instruments, right. but they very much are. They're designed to... African Union. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the evidence suggests that that actually matters. The institutions are not dead just because no. the populists are trying to... Yeah. 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 The People still have their jobs. They're still trying to do their, their yes. jobs. Um, you have worked on uh, interventions, humanitarian intervention, etc. There are people who believe that uh, the great powers are in it for reasons that are not very humanitarian. Yeah. And they are part of the problem in many regions today, especially in the Middle East. Where do you place the great power politics from the mess we are in the Middle East today? Or is it uh, purely, I mean, is it yeah. largely regional processes? I think there's so much blame to go around that it'd be difficult to figure out who who gets to shoulder most of the burden. Um, that the region has clearly been able to mess things up for themselves. Sure. There's no, you know, and, and again, the, the, the difficulties uh, are widely shared. And it's also the case that great powers have their own vested interests and are ready to engage and uh, very much interfere and to intervene in order to promote those vested interests. Tactical gains more than long-term strategic gains? Um, they're, they're nested in, in hopefully long-term, but they're often tactical gains. Yeah. Uh, but these are also great powers that have been actively, actively you know, invited mm -hmm. to come in and mess around. So it's not just simply that Russia has intervened in Syria. Right. Syria invited the Russians to come in and mess around yeah. because that was in Syria's interest. Mm -hmm. And so there's always been, I think, both dynamics. And I think the, you know, one of the lessons that I think the United States has tried to learn time and again is that, you know, oftentimes they're invited in and they don't actually, you know, they don't really come out of the, out of the, you know, bargain with what they wanted. So I, you know, I think like. But the U.S. at least some of the decision makers think that we are still in hegemonic mode, we could win if we persist or keep going, you know? So, I don't know if they think they're in hegemonic mode or even the language of winning mm -hmm. resonates. Mm -hmm. I think it's more about uncertainty about what the alternative would be right. and the fear that the alternative might be worse. So mm -hmm. take the, the issue of the so-called pivot away from the Middle East and towards Asia. I mean, that's something that Obama clearly wanted, but he found that, unfortunately, the Middle East wouldn't let him pivot. pivot. And it wasn't just the Middle East. There were, obviously, foreign policy officials and military officials in the United States, in Europe and elsewhere, who didn't want to see the United States pivot as well, because there was too much, in their view, there was too much to stake. And I would also say that, you know, after the invasion of Iraq, uh, I you know there was a little bit of a sentiment that the U.S. broke it. You can't just walk away. Right. And the U.S. should uh, at least settle some of its problems, and before it goes away. But the U.S. strategy has not been as well thought out. If you look at the post-war settlements with Germany and Japan versus the Middle East today, it seems. A lot of uncertainty with respect to what the U.S. itself wants, and your response that it is the fear of the future, the unknown is probably that is causing this sort of confusion to some extent. Um, how do we combine 
sort of the you've worked a lot on normative orders in constructive mm -hmm. literature. There is a movement for eclecticism, need for uh, including power. And in your presentation today, I was thinking that some of your language was indeed uh, from the power century, uh, especially hierarchy and things like that. Are there uh, room for much more, uh, much closer relationship between uh, isms? And how do we get out of the ism wars that we have been accustomed to in our international relations discipline? Yeah. I miss the ism wars. You miss them. I miss them. You know, so I think actually we've successfully navigated away from them. I mean, at least in the United within United States IR, uh, I don't think there's, uh, I, you know, there was never a vote taken. Um, but I do think that there was a large bit of weariness among certainly a, a, a great number of important American IR scholars that the ism wars weren't getting us very far in terms of right. our understanding of the world. Right. That in fact what it was doing was it was promoting separate islands mm -hmm. and everybody was very happy on their island yeah. but the islands weren't at all in engaging with one another. Mm -hmm. And in that vein in comes along what, you know, we can call any number of things but what we just call simply normal social science or hypothesis testing. Mm -hmm. And so increasingly the issue was less about which ism are we going, you know, in terms of a combative mood, uh, engage, but rather in terms of much more empirically grounded hypothesis puzzles that are in many ways, they're not beyond theory testing because we're never beyond theories. Uh, but it's rather a, what's seen as a kind of rejection of them. But even though there's a rejection, they're still very theory-laden. So if you look at, let's say, the journal International Organization, there are very few big theory pieces. They don't really exist very often. Uh, most of them are, you know, if you will, a lot of survey research, uh, a lot of experimental methods, uh, a lot of quantitative yeah. uh, and econometric reasoning, mm -hmm. uh, but all designed to sort of tease out yeah. sort of smaller micro, pieces of puzzles. Pieces. Right. So that is also criticized because they don't tell us the whole picture. No, that's right. Um, and I think for many people, it's 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 not just simply a question of knowledge. I think it's also a question of I don't know Priority. aesthetics mm -hmm. uh, that. We like certain things and don't like other things, and there are some people who get very frustrated with the micro, and then there's some people who worry that too much in the macro yeah. is also very self-indulgent. So perhaps we need both, but both sides don't seem to talk. So they don't that. talk very. They don't talk very often, um, and um, and, I, and I think even pe the people who are who are at one point let's say, ready to move on from the sort of isms, yeah. now kind of miss it because there's no more. There's no big theory, you know, people don't do it. There, occasionally there are books and articles that are big theory. Um, again, I would just, you know, cite my, my former co-author, Emmanuel Adler, yeah, you know, whose recent book is, is clearly big theory. Yeah. And he's not the only one. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's very 
it's very far and few between. Yes. Tell us uh, the two critical areas you published recently, Global Governance as well as uh, the, the new book that you're talking about, uh, humanitarian Humanitarianism. What are the new things or interesting dimensions, very briefly, that you yeah. took out? Well, the, the piece on global governance, it's a, this is a collective project that I'm doing with Cal Westial and John Peavy House. And, you know, essentially the puzzle is, and this may actually, you know, I don't know if this puzzle's true, but this is what we, this was what set us going, was this observation that it used to be in the good old days, let's say post-World War II, when there was a big global problem, you ended up having an attempt at big global solutions. So, you know, we had, we had GATT, you know, we set up various kinds of treaties. There were big conventions. Uh, we built big buildings, you know, with big impressive acronyms. And they were oftentimes um, global membership, or at least very, very, you know, a large number of members. And they had big ambitions. And post-Cold War, what we've seen is a retreat from this, that we don't find any more you know, attempts at global treaty making. Occasionally, we do a boost of climate change, but it doesn't happen very often. There are no more, you know, we don't really see many treaties. We don't see more big buildings. They happen every now and then. But essentially, what's gone on in global governance, we observe, was that we weren't swinging for the fences, if you will. We were just, you know, trying to make incremental change. So it wasn't as ambitious, it was much more modest, which again might be good, but we were curious about what was taking place with global governance. And there were these ancillary debates whether, you know, this is good enough or whether we need something, we need to go to something different because, you know, as we jokingly say, you're not going to solve climate change by changing the light bulbs in your pictures. Yeah, you, you need something bigger probably. So we wanted to understand what was going on and in the process of doing so, began to look at the growing diversity of global governance instruments. And so we're going from international organizations to public-private partnerships and networks and you know a whole other set of configurations. And also began to see the extent to which in many ways, the way we organized or even thought about global governance was changing from big regulatory instruments mm -hmm. in many ways to markets. Sure. Uh, so we think about solving climate change maybe with new technologies that will create new markets. Mm -hmm. We don't think about creating a new, say, global gov climate czar who will impose from above new kinds of climate regulations. So, you know, the, this is sort of what we're trying to do is sort of capture a little bit about what change was going on and why it was and what the stakes were for solving these problems. Diverse approaches to change. Yes, yeah, so change is very. And then the, the work on humanitarianism, I, you know, in any number of directions, uh, one of them has always been about what is this thing that we call humanitarianism and what does it stand for and what do we expect from it. But uh, some of the work I've done recently is very much about power within the humanitarian architecture, uh, who sets the rules and who's supposed to abide by the rules, and then how it is that humanitarianism relates to these other expressions of, shall we say, global justice, 
like human rights and development and public health um, and looking at this big complex yes. of interventions that are designed for the global good. Yeah, I like the idea of uh, the two-way impact of power politics and institutions, which I don't think we have done properly. We have a really good collection recently came out. But what was interesting was that this badly is needed, and this is a great area that you were in, in terms of humanitarian assistance. Yeah. Well, it's been, if I just say one thing that's, mm -hmm. that's a challenge a bit, mm -hmm. is that if you think about an area, I mean, I think the, at least my students do, mm -hmm. when they come to my class on humanitarianism, mm -hmm. They really do think they're walking not into a sacred space, mm -hmm. but they're walking to talk about the angels. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the people that you admire. They're doing yes. a good thing. They're putting their lives on the line. Yes. Yes. Uh, they're not joining Wall Street. Right. You know, they're going into they're going to Africa, and so they're admirable. And you know, and I acknowledge all that, but I also you know an enduring concern in my research over my lifetime mm -hmm. has always been about power. Yes. And even though these are individuals with an ethics of care, yes. they really do care, mm -hmm. there's still power between them and the recipients. Course, yes. And really wanting to understand how that works. Mm -hmm. The foot soldiers need not know everything that the power that is. Yeah, you're not always aware. Mm -hmm. I want to conclude by talking a little bit about progress in uh, international relations theory. Mm -hmm. Where are we heading? We talked a little bit at our you know, lunch about global IR, which uh, some of our colleagues uh, like Amitabh Chari are working on. And what's the most interesting thing that a research scholar today can work on if he or she wants to do a PhD? And, uh, and also you can talk a little bit about the challenges of global IR and what else they should do. Uh, These are two do different topics, but obviously the idea is to get a sense of where do we go from where we are today, mm. and how do we address these diverse issues, diverse cultures, diverse uh, civilizations, and we, we are talking about how China, India, and India look at history as right. part of their big base, base board, whereas the Western or American uh, IR is the history of a short period, and it's, it's quite an interesting dynamics going on, and where will IR be in 100 years from now, for instance, you know? Well, too far ahead. Yeah. You know, I, again, I, I'm very cognizant that when I speak about these issues, I'm speaking as an American scholar of international relations. And I can't even represent American IR scholars. I can only obviously represent myself. But I, you know, part of the trend that's happening, I don't know if it's exciting, um, because I don't know what's going to be coming of it, is I do think there's a heightened attention for good and bad to methods, which for me is not intellectually exciting, methods are a tool, but it's clear that many key schools are doing that. That this is actually, you know, uh, I think there are trends within the discipline that just keep reinforcing yeah. the kind of methods driven work that we have. Um, I think, you know, for me, one of the, you know, there are, are on the table, though, I think a set of issues that are driven by world events. Uh, there have obviously been a fair bit of controversies about the liberal world order yes. and you know what it is and whether it was ever that liberal um, and what will become of it, which I think actually raise a lot of really interesting, you know, the kinds of questions that you've been concerned about as well, 
which is what's the nature of the order, who is it for? Yeah, what uh, happened to order changes? Right. Yeah, that's true. And you know, one of the questions, at least again speaking, that I've had is that one of the things that the liberal world order, I think, had going for it, mm -hmm. and this is a bit of a, a provocation, was that it had a sense of the future. Mm -hmm. There was a sense in which what progress means. Progress is possible. That progress is possible. Mm -hmm. We kind of know what progress looks like. You interviewed Steven Pinker, I yes, guess, a few weeks yeah, ago, and he very well represents that view, that progress is possible. And, you know, within the IR tradition, there's a lot of ambivalence about the notion of progress and what it is. And so I do think that those kinds of issues play into what I see as another interesting set of substantive debates which is that, you know, and this is not new, but it's that dialectic or paradox between this growing intensification of exchange and interaction, mm -hmm. which we kind of thought might lead to some form of sense of community, right. uh, but also this question about how you deal with yes. difference. Yeah, but you have both centripetal and centrifugal forces. Yes. Which is interesting, it's mostly, some people say it's globalization side impact, but I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that, and, and from, you know, for me, part of it as a management issue yes. is how do you organize order. The leadership too. Yeah, how do you organize order when you have these. So if I think about, let's say the Swiss-Falian world, mm -hmm. I mean, the way they dealt with it was by essentially trying to put religion in a box. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, we're going to secularize, you know, not not domestic society, but global society, and religion's in a box, and this is how we'll deal with this problem of difference. And I think one of the challenges that's been, you know, haunting post-Cold War global politics is this question of difference yes. and how you manage Suddenly it. people have arrived and were expecting to be alive. Yeah, and the people that used to be outside yes. and during the Cold War, yes. because they were not, now they're, Part of They're part of it, and this I think raises lots of difficult questions, not only about how you negotiate difference at the interstate level, but obviously how it is that the negotiation of difference at the yes. domestic level feeds into the global level. And the mechanisms for that, and, and how do we adjust democracy, right. much of it, but the democracy deficit today is, you know, the kind of depression they call it happening. Is affecting the way minorities are, or you know, how do we integrate societies without proper democracy? So there's a vax to square one. We need better liberalism. Well, in many ways, we may wish we may <laughs> we may not know what we miss until it's gone. That is um, true. So you know, and I do think that this there's no question. I think of the growing populism, mm -hmm. which for me is not it is an expression also of some forms of nationalism, which are always some forms of chauvinism. Mm, yes. And, you know, how it is that you... But it's also localizational, isn't it? Some people are sure. able to mobilize it better than others. But you can't mobilize something that wasn't there. And so as an American, I, you know, I, you know, I, I know that we've had long-standing debates about whether, you know, Trump has produced something that wasn't there. Mm. But I think most of us acknowledge that it was always there. Yes, but he, he channelized. But he created a safe space yes. for all these people who otherwise felt that they could not speak. Yes, rhetoric through rhetoric yeah. reactions. Yeah, but I think the populists probably could be defeated at some point. 
I think these are cycles. People get tired of them after a while because they won't deliver much. But on the other hand, uh, more populists could come back, but we need more progressive. So thanks a lot, uh, Michael, for coming and giving us this oh, my pleasure. discussion. And hopefully we'll continue this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.